hearing your word this morning that is brought from you, Pastor Philip. Uh, just anoint his tongue, allow his words to speak straight from your heart. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, good morning. Good morning. Yep. We had a great time last night with the chicken stew. Um, I know that over 750 people uh, rode on the tractors and went around for the trunk or treat. So it's up after that because there's some people that didn't ride on the tractors, right? Yeah, see, there's one. So it's 751 right there. Um, so yeah, so, so great, great time. And uh, let's, let's see a couple aerial, aerial shots of this. So that's outside, of course, where the people are eating. Here's the next one. That's actually the, the uh, hayride and trunk or treat pathway right there. And then um, here's the last one, which I just think is a pretty, it's a pretty, it's a pretty picture, right? Well, this whole thing cannot go on without volunteers. And there's a lot of volunteers that did a lot of work to, to make this happen. Uh, Jimmy and Sonia and Jansen handled the food. Uh, my wife uh, spent two weeks with um, Dakota and Hannah over here in the Children's Worship Center building a box maze. So they would get here about three or four in the afternoon and stay all the way to 10. And then she would get home about 11. And so that's a lot of hours during the week to get that box maze to go. If you haven't seen that box maze, you should walk over afterwards and look at it. Can I have a little light in the room? It's a little bit of light. And uh, so, so that's a lot of work too. Um, very thankful for the trunks and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think that we have some of the best volunteers ever in any church is what I think. That's my personal opinion. And to kind of back that up a little bit, we, we rented a bounce house and the guy, Anthony, came out and um, I was talking to him after he had packed up. He said, y'all have some remarkable volunteers I started putting down the bounce house and looked to my right and the tables were gone, right? So he was very impressed with, with how we cleaned up. And to be honest, this church can set up and tear down just like that. It, it is crazy how fast it goes. I've, I've been a part of helping other churches do things and it's just so slow, so slow, but here people jump in and, and, it, and it's really good. So thanks for that. It was a great evening. And there's my Bible. And we are next week going to start a series called Eight Maids of Milking. So that's what all the banners and stuff is out there for. But that's not this week. This week, the title of the message is Love uh, Unexpected and Misunderstood. Love Unexpected and Misunderstood. And so to start... Um, I would like to give you some background information about how people lived in the first century when Jesus was here, okay? So this right here represents a town or a city, okay? This is as you go into the city. This is as you go out of the city. I know it could go the other way, right? You go in and out. I, I realize that, but just run with it. This is how you go into the city. That's how you go out, out of the city. And so what would happen is if there was a very important person that was going to come visit, and the town knew about it, they had gotten word that he was going to come to their city, what would happen was they would start planning for his arrival. 
Because you see, back before there was texting and phones, there was what's called the grapevine, right? Which we still use today, you just don't know it. So nonetheless, here it is, this is important Christian. So what would happen is they would send out a group of people to meet this guy as he made his way toward their city. Now, in sending them out, they had already selected a place in their city where he was going to dine that evening. So there was a banquet that was going to be prepared for him. And so these people came out. This person had already started doing the banquet. And so he's traveling through to this city. All of this was to make this important person realize that their city was just a great place to be right? And so they didn't want any type of riffraff around. They didn't want anything that would make their city look bad, their town look bad. They wouldn't want that. So they greeted him outside of here, and he made his way to the city, and he stopped at the banquet. And he ate at this banquet, and he also slept in this location that evening in the city. Now, this was a nice place to stay, Um, It was probably somebody that was affluent in the city that opened up their home for this, but the banquet was laid, and then he slept in their house that evening. And then when he left the very next day, this entourage would actually go with him out of the city, and they would continue to go in this direction to a particular point. Uh, The more important the person was, the further they would go as he exited the city. But this is kind of the way that they... Um, approached people that were very important that were, was coming to their particular village. Now, with that in mind, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter... <laughs> Luke chapter 18. Yep. Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. And um, Luke chapter 18, it does have 18 chapters. Luke chapter 18, and we're going to start reading with verse 35, okay? So Luke chapter 18, verse 35, and this is what it says. It says, as he drew near to Jericho. Now, every phrase and sometimes even word in Scripture means something. And so to the people that Luke was writing to, when they heard, as he drew near to Jericho, they are picturing this. He's drawing near to Jericho, and there's people around Jesus. Because everybody had heard of Jesus. They'd also heard that he was going to pass through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem for the Passover. They had heard that. So what had happened was, they started to prepare. And as he drew near to Jerusalem, to Jericho, as he drew near to Jericho, a group of people went out from the city to meet him and greet him and walk with him to their town. That's what happened. And somebody in the town had been selected to start a banquet. So preparations for a banquet for Jesus to eat at a particular place had already started, and the plan was for him to stay right here because what Jericho wanted was for their city to look good in Jesus' eyes because he was an important rabbi. He was important and powerful because they had heard that he had healed people too, so they were very excited. So as he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. 
a blind man. So as he's going, there's this blind man. He's going to be a little bigger, right? Most blind people are skinny. And, and then he was blind, right? So he's blind. And as this guy goes along, as Jesus comes along, this blind man is sitting there. And, and this is what happens. And hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. So it's like, oh my goodness, what is going on? There must be somebody big coming. I wonder who it is. And so he inquired what was going on, and someone told him that Jesus was passing by. And instantly the blind man knew who Jesus was, because this is what he says after that. It says, and hearing the crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. Verse 37, they told him Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus Son of David, have mercy on me. He did it very loudly. Verse 39, and those who were in front of the entourage. Are you tracking? Yeah. In front of the entourage, this is what they said. They, those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. Hey, shh. We don't need you messing things up. We don't need you yelling out, you're blind. He doesn't have time for you. We need to put on our best face for our town, for the town of Jerusalem. We need to put on our best face. So shh, be quiet, be quiet, just shh, be quiet. And so they, they pushed him down. They oppressed him in that moment, told him to be quiet. Do not do that. But this guy who is blind knows who Jesus is. So he's sitting there, and when they tell him to be quiet, he is louder. So, but he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped right here at the blind man. Dead, cold stop. And he says this, and he commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near he asked him. So he stopped. He commanded that blind man to be brought. So all the people who are going, shh, be quiet, be quiet, be quiet, now we're commanded. Isn't Jesus awesome? Now we're commanded to take the blind man right in front of Jesus, right? Have you ever been humiliated by a teacher before like that? Like you really thought you had the right answer, you know, and you went up and you're like, yeah, I got the right answer. They're wrong. And you realize, oh, Oh, well, you know that's how they felt at that moment. So they brought him up to Jesus. And so Jesus then says this to him. Um, what do you want me to do for you? Now, that is, that is a, a big statement too. And here's why. Beggars, not only were they oppressed, but when they were sitting there begging for money... They were required, or the, or the cultural expectation was, when they were sitting there begging for money and someone came along and gave them money, they were supposed to stand up and say, this guy right here just gave me money. He just supplied my need for food this evening. He is a wonderful, compassionate guy. And so people that were affluent, maybe they needed to improve upon their... Um, their reputation, maybe they were running for office. That never happens. 
comes through and gave him money so that he would stand up and say, this is awesome. They gave me money. I can now eat tonight. He has supplied my need. And so the one that was oppressed was required to give thanks to the one that was oppressing him and using him for PR purposes, right? And so when Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? That is a question that guy had never heard in his entire life. What do you mean? I get, I get to request what I need and not help this person out? If I request this, I don't have to praise you. I can just ask you for what I need and what I want and why I cried out for you. And so the guy is standing there and he has a, he has a choice to make. He's either going to ask him to be healed or he's not. Now you might say, well, why wouldn't he ask to be healed? Because he's blind. I would ask to be healed. Well, you, you need to think about this guy a moment. This guy has no education, period. No education. He has no job skills. He's never done a garden, never been behind an ox tilling a garden. Are, are you attracted? He's blind, right? He didn't have a comfort animal. Right? He didn't have any of this stuff. He was alone. He had no skill. The only skill he had was getting to that spot and getting back home. That's the only skill he had. He had to find the food and trust the people that, that did the food, did it correctly so that he could eat it and take it home. He knew his way around, but he had no skill, no nothing. If he was to ask to be healed, he would lose his only source of income. And for the next couple of weeks, he'd be un unemployed. And back then, the government didn't give you money to help you out during those weeks. I'm not saying anything about that, but I'm just saying, didn't do that. So he had a choice to make. Is it worth getting healed so I can see? Or is it better for me just to stay like I am and still have income? And the guy says, Lord, um, he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. What faith did this guy have? First, he had faith that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. He had faith that Jesus had healed other people that were blind before he made it to his village. He had faith that Jesus, if he asked him, there was a possibility that he would receive his sight. And he wanted his sight. So he asked for it, and he got it. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. And so what did he do? And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. I want you to notice that he was not glorifying Jesus. He was glorifying God. Now, you and I know that Jesus is God. We know he's the second person of the Trinity. It's one and the same. But this guy is brand new. He knows he's the son of David. He knows he, he's the Messiah. He has enough faith to ask Jesus to heal him. But maybe he doesn't have all the theology that we have. And so it says he glorifies God. He didn't glorify 
Jesus, he glorified God the Father and what he did through Jesus is what this guy was thinking. And so he's glorifying and he's praising. And then the crowd does something very interesting. The crowd that was saying, shh, shh, be quiet. The crowd that was embarrassed to bring him in front of Jesus now is also praising God because the oppressed has been lifted up out of oppression. And this is what it said. It says, and all the people, when they saw it, all this entourage, when they saw it, right, uh, gave praise to God. Isn't that incredible? Absolutely amazing. Someone that had been blind from birth, had been oppressed. Jesus Christ comes, he heals him, lifts him up, puts him on the same footing as everybody else in the room because that's what Jesus does. An amazing story. But that story does not end right there. It doesn't. There's another half of that story. You see, we end this, our Bibles end it, that's the end of chapter 18, but actually the story continues to go to chapter 19, and this is what it says. He entered Jericho. So he heals them outside of Jericho, and he enters into Jericho. So now Jesus is in Jericho, and everybody is expecting him to go to the house that they have selected, to eat the nice meal that they are preparing, to sleep in the nice bed that they have prepared for him that evening, to be like, yeah, he stayed with me. The famous rabbi stayed with me. The city was great. And not only has he stayed with me, he's healed somebody outside. And we're just all excited. So this group of people right here is very excited that Jesus is, is in there. So it says, he entered Jericho and was passing through. This means, ladies and gentlemen, that <laughs> Jesus went into Jericho and had no intent in staying there that evening. So he's walking through Jericho and he's going out of the city and these people right here are like, man, he's not gonna stay with us this evening. He's passing through. He's not gonna stay with us. What are we gonna do with all this chicken stew? <laughs> we prepared it. We, we had this banquet ready. It was seasoned correctly. It's kosher. He's going to Jerusalem for Passover. What are we going to do with all of this food? And so the banquet is now canceled. No bed and breakfast, nothing like that. It is absolutely gone. And so Jesus comes out of the city to the other side. And in verse two, it says, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. That is how it's termed in the original Greek, I'm sure. I'm sure of it. Somehow that is there. It's a wee little man. So here, here's Zacchaeus, and he's there, and it says right here, he's a tax collector. He says he's a chief tax collector and was rich. That means he's over all the tax collecting in this entire city. What he says goes. We have to pause there a moment too. Tax collector and sinner. For the longest time, I wondered why those two things were broke apart. The reason those are broke apart is because people hated tax collectors. They hated them. They would tax you and take more than you really owed to the government. Right? I'm, I'm sure all of y'all really love um, April 
and the collection of taxes. I'm sure that you love that, but these people didn't, and they didn't like the tax collectors. They did not like the GRS, I guess it would be IRS, G, J, because it would be in Jerusalem. Somehow that would work. In the, in the system, okay? So, so they didn't like this guy. So they didn't like him at all. And in fact, it was better. Like if you had to choose, Perry, if you had to choose between being a tax collector and a sinner, like you say, a good sinner, tax collector and a sinner, you would choose to be a sinner rather than a tax collector because tax collectors were under the sinners in Palm's Glum, the worst of the worst. There was nobody worse than they were. Okay, so we have the good sinners here and just the pond scum down here. And they hated Zacchaeus. They hated him. He was a wee, wee little man. <laughs> and they hated him. They hated him for his tax collecting. Okay, so it, con- it continues here. Okay, um, and he was seeking to see who Jesus was. So he's wondering about this man. I don't know why. I know it wasn't to collect taxes because he didn't live in the city, but he was wondering who Jesus was. We don't know why. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So we need to pause here a moment. We know from history that there has been crowds of people before in this time period where someone they didn't like was in the crowd, they were killed, and as the crowd passed... They were left there and nobody knew who killed him. So Zacchaeus is looking at this crowd and he's thinking, I need to get to Jesus. I can't go into the crowd because I might be hurt or killed. And chances are he would have at least gotten hurt. He knew the people didn't like him. He knew it was dangerous for him to I'm trying to be as short as he is. Get through the crowd. He knew it'd be bad. And somebody with a quick knife, a quick elbow, quick whatever, lay him out and he's dead and gone. And he would have never made it to Jesus. Another thing you need to know probably about this is other rich people in the town wouldn't have had this problem. In fact, if you're a respected rich man in the town, all you have to do is say, let me through. And the crowd would part in order for you to get to that individual, in order for you to get to Jesus. They, after all, was trying to put on their best face, right? Put their best face forward. But for somebody hated that was the richest man in town, he was not going to get through that crowd. And so he looked, and he did two things that Middle Eastern men never let you see them do. Never let you see them do. And here's what he did. He ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree. Okay, if you're a guy in the room, raise your hand if you want people to watch you run. Exactly. We don't want to see you run either. Okay? You don't want to see me run. I have bad form. I don't even run around my neighborhood. In fact, I'll walk around my neighborhood because running would be exercise, and that's against my principles. So we, we don't run. So guys don't run, and they would not climb up into a tree. To climb up into a tree would be like a kid's thing to do. 
So we're not going to do that. But Zacchaeus is like, yeah, the crowd's right here. And what I need to do is I need to take a shortcut around here, back here, through here, because that's how we make shortcuts, all the way through here. And I need to get someplace where I can see him. And so he found a sycamore tree, which had a lot of leaves. And Zacchaeus, represented by this little bitty dot, (laughs) climbs up into the tree. And he hid behind the leaves in the tree because he didn't want, it's okay, that's funny. He didn't want anybody to see him. It's very, very tiny. Just didn't want anybody to see him. He was there um, as a tiny little dot. And so Jesus is making his way to the tree. By the way, sycamore trees were never in a city or a town. Did you know that? Too big. They were always outside the town or city. So really, there could have been a sycamore tree right here. I won't draw that for you, but it's right here. So sycamore trees were outside of the city, and they used the wood um, for the beams in their roofs of their houses. That's what they used the wood for. So he climbed up into this tree, and Jesus, in verse 5, and when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. And at that moment, Jesus did something very culturally wrong. You are not supposed to invite yourself as a visitor to someone's house. You're not supposed to do that. Listen, I get it. If you called me on the phone, and it was the day of, and you said, Philip, I'd like to come stay at your house, I would tell you no. No, I'll pay for you a hotel room. That's fine. We'll get another place for you to stay somewhere else, but you can't come to my home. I haven't had time to prepare for you. I, there's, there's, I gotta get drinks because I don't want you to drink mine. I mean, there's, oh, come on. You know you've hidden drinks and candy before when people came to your house so they don't know it's there. I'm not the only one, right? Not the only one. So you, you don't, I don't have time for this. I, I've got things to do, people to see. Look, you're not coming to my, you can't just invite yourself to my house, right? Now, if Nicole was in here, she's sweeter than I am. You could call her on the phone at any moment and come over to our house and we'll eat, we'll stay. It doesn't matter what the condition of the house is in. She really doesn't care. She would just want you to come over because she's compassion, humble, and kind. I don't want you at my house unless I plan for it. That is the difference. And you can ask her. It's just the way I am. Now, I'm not that mean, but really, would you want anybody else to say, yeah? There are two, four people. There are four people that could call me on an instant notice and they could stay at my house. They're actually my four favorite people outside of Nicole because she's already there in the world. My mom, my dad, and my two children. I did not say my in-laws. I'm going to have to make that six. I counted incorrectly, okay? Ralph Lee and Janet can come over anytime. But you know what I mean? You don't want people to do that. So Jesus is sitting here and he's saying, hey, I'm coming to your house today. And Zacchaeus comes down out of the tree and instantly says these words. In fact, he says, so he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. So Zacchaeus comes down from the tree receives Jesus, 
And then Zacchaeus runs back ahead of Jesus to his house. Runs all the way back. Because now the banquet isn't at the nice place. The banquet is at the most hated person's house in the entire community. The most hated. Zacchaeus is an oppressor. He's an oppressor of people. He takes their money and he gets rich off of it. And Jesus has not only invited himself to his house to eat, he is going to stay the night in his house. The Greek word there is definitely eat and stay. And the people respond. And this is what they say in verse 9. I mean, verse 8. Um, I, yeah, verse 7, sorry. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. The crowd that was with him, the crowd that tried to silence this particular person, the crowd that praised God when he was healed of his blindness, the crowd that is now here sees Zacchaeus comes down, now grumbles against Jesus because he's going to Zacchaeus' house, enemy number one in the city, to eat and stay the evening. They are beside themselves. And I just have to pause here a moment to say, it's times like this I, really, I, I feel kind of good. Because sometimes people grumble against me. And every time they do, it's just a reminder that now I have a deeper connection with Jesus. So thank you for doing that. Come on. The disciples did it in Acts, right? So thank you. I get it. He was grumbled against. Jesus, the perfect guy that you should have never grumbled against, the people still grumbled against him. And you know what? In your life, as a Christian, when you do the right thing and when people grumble against you, you now have a deeper connection with Jesus than you had before they started grumbling. Come on, church. Grumbling hurts, but it's not so much a bad thing. It gets you more connected with our Savior, an amazing thing. So they grumbled against Jesus um, because they don't like the oppressor. So Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house And the very next verse is verse 8, and it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Wow. Wow. Zacchaeus, because Jesus has shown him love, has had a heart change. Because Jesus is not only for the oppressed, he is also for the oppressors. So let me pause here a moment. And I'm sure some of you have, so this is not an accusation. How many of you have prayed for the salvation of the terrorist organization, Hamas? Prayed that God would come in and save their soul. Listen, I'm for Egypt. They should not have been attacked. And Israel should defend themselves back. Totally supporting that. I don't want you to get me wrong. But in our prayers for Israel, 
and for them to win this war and for them to be saved? Have we also prayed for the salvation of the Palestinians? Jesus would because he loves the oppressed and the oppressor. He is not willing that any should perish, but all should have eternal life. And so we pray for that. And without salvation, there is no peace in the world, period. Now, one day, Israel is going to have their plot of land because Jesus, I mean, well, Jesus did. He promised that to Abraham. It is going to be their property. And then the Palestinians are going to have to go to where Jesus tells them to go to live. I'm looking forward to that day. Right? They will not be able to battle over that land any longer. It will be done. They will be separated. The Palestinians have a land that Jesus has for them, and Israel has their land he promised to Abraham. That is going to happen. But until then, ladies and gentlemen, we need to pray for the oppressors and the oppressed that they all find Jesus and get wrapped in his unexpected love. The reason this is so important is because when I was the oppressor, Jesus Christ loved me to salvation. And he did the same thing for you. This crowd doesn't like this oppressor, but doesn't mind oppressing here. Right? This crowd had no problem hating this guy, had no problem suppressing this guy. Because that, ladies and gentlemen, is the definition of a hypocrite. We don't like the people more powerful than us, and we suppress the people that aren't as powerful as us. And Christian people should never do that, period. We should love everybody. That is what this story is about. Zacchaeus had a change of heart. So let me ask you this question. When you received the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, was there a major change in your heart toward people? Did you start loving them more? Did you start caring for them more? Or is there kind of hate in your heart and contention toward individuals? So let's, let's talk about this a few moments, okay? Let's talk about this a few moments. And I want to sit down to do it because... Philip's bedtime is 10 o'clock, and he got to bed at quarter till 12. So I'm going to sit a moment, okay? Is that all right? And I did this one. It doesn't matter. Here we go. Let's talk about this. Earlier this week, I was talking to a good friend of mine, and he mentioned a concept called a relationship gap. Has anybody ever heard of this, a relationship gap? Anybody in the room? Yeah. So I was intrigued by this. After our conversation, so much so, I started looking up podcasts on it. So I've listened to some podcasts on this topic and stuff like this. It's a relationship gap. And this is the relationship gap. This is what happens. Let's say, and this is just an example. There's more of these. Um, Let's say that we have a meeting here at the church at 5 o'clock for a group of people. And one of the people is 15 minutes late. That has created a relationship gap. Okay, so I'm sitting there waiting for these people to come. They were supposed to be here at 5. They're not here yet. It's now 5.15. And I have a moment where I can either fill that gap with trust or suspicion. Okay, because I'm going to fill it with something. 
I'm going to think something about that person that is late. Trust would do this. Bob, Bob isn't here, guys. I don't know where he is. He's normally on time. He hasn't texted me. Um, maybe something's wrong. Maybe, maybe he's in the hospital. Maybe something happened with his family. I think I'm going to call just to make sure that he's okay. Maybe Bob got behind a couple of tractors on the way to the church, which is absolutely possible, right? Or maybe he got behind the oppressing bicyclers <laughs> on the road and he can't get around the oppression of these bikers, right? Don't tell me you haven't thought it, right? <laughs> Pushing the, okay, it doesn't matter. So here's these oppressors. Maybe he got behind them, and that's what's causing him not to be on time. Maybe there is a good reason for Bob being late. Suspicion does this. You know, Bob does this all the time. He really needs to get more organized. He's always late. I don't even think he thinks it's important to be here on time. In fact, he's probably stopping at um, Starbucks for a latte before he comes here. He's going to walk through that door with a coffee in his hand that it took him 10 minutes to get, and then he had to travel here five minutes from Starbucks. Now, Starbucks isn't five minutes from here, by the way. I know that. But nonetheless, here we are. And so you begin to do the suspicion thing, and you start making accusations, Right? And the moment you start making accusations and creating stories about why Bob is late and not giving him the benefit of the doubt and trust, you become the oppressor in that moment. I'll put it to you this way. Anytime you do not give people the benefit of the doubt that you would like if you were in their situation is the moment that you become the oppressor and you are pushing people down. You're making up stuff in your mind about them. You, you are making all this kind of stuff and it creates kind of an environment. It makes a toxic environment. And so when you finally see that individual and you confront that individual, it's going to blow up because you've set it up to blow up. You have set the conflict up not to go well. But if you trust and give the benefit of the doubt, it sets up a more peaceful confrontation and a better one in the end. Bob, hey man, you're not here yet. I'm just a little concerned about why you're not here. I've made this call a couple of times. Are, are you okay? Because this isn't normal. Oh, oh, Philip, I forgot the meeting. I am so sorry. You know what, Bob, I forget to. And, and that's just fine. But I am glad, genuinely glad that you are not in a wreck or something or something terrible. I'm genuinely glad. When you do that, you create more positive relationships and instead of oppressing people, you make them your friend on the same footing. This is how Jesus wants you to live because Jesus is giving everyone in here the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't have to because he already knows. But he loves you so much that he gives you the benefit of doubt, you need to give other people the benefit of the doubt. I think it's interesting that when I'm late or when I do something wrong, I have outside circumstances that cause me to do it. So it makes it okay. 
But when someone else does something wrong, it is a character flaw. (laughs) And you fill the gap with that character flaw. And that is not how believers should be. We should trust until we can't trust any longer. I thought about this. I have, I've actually lived this out um, and didn't know it. Trusting people, trusting that they had good intentions, and even when the trust ran out, the conflict that happened was minimalized because I had not created a bunch of other stupid conflicts that we had to work through. You always believe in people because Jesus believes in you. Zacchaeus was one of those people. Um, Another thing about the story, it's kind of interesting here. We have this crowd that doesn't even know what has happened to them. In fact, it probably won't dawn on them till later. And this is what has happened. Jesus Christ has come into the city and he's healed a blind man and raised him to the level of everybody else. He's gone over here to Zacchaeus and he saved him. And he raised him to the level of everybody else. And in so doing, Zacchaeus has decided to give back fourfold what he had taken, and give half of his riches to the poor. So Zacchaeus is a man, and if you read that, I've done the math. I could be wrong on the math, but I've done the math. If he gave up half of his wealth and then fourfold of what he took from everybody in the city, Zacchaeus would now become the blind man with no money. He would be bankrupt. But because of his change of heart, he wants to lift the city up out of oppression. And Jesus, in turning around and going back to Zacchaeus' house, lifted oppression for everybody in Jericho. Everybody. They were no longer going to have to live under the suppression of the taxes. He did that. And that was far greater than anything that would have happened if he had gone to the according to plan. In fact, I'll submit this to you. If Jesus had followed the crowd, the blind man would still be blind, Zacchaeus would still be lost, and oppression would still be in the city. We don't follow the crowd. We follow Jesus, and we do what's right. And when that happens, oppression is lifted Jesus is on his way to the Passover, and I can't get away from this, this picture. Let's change this to Jerusalem. Jesus comes into Jerusalem. They take him out of Jerusalem and hang him on a tree. He dies. Three days later, he rises again and goes to the upper room to lift the oppression of the entire world. It's amazing, isn't it? I thought about that picture a little bit. When Jesus told him to come down out of the tree, they weren't grumbling against Zacchaeus. They were grumbling against Jesus. And so Jesus took 
the hurt, the pain, the oppression of Zacchaeus and laid it on his shoulders instead and gave old Zacchaeus a break. Aren't you glad that on Calvary, Jesus took your oppression, your sin, everything that was wrong with you, everything anybody could grumble about, and he laid it upon his shoulders and he said, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. And if Jesus has done that for me, I should do that for everybody else. It is time to live our lives filling the gaps in our relationships with trust and positive thoughts rather than all this negative junk that most of it isn't even true. Amen? And that is the message from a little town called Jericho in Luke 18 and 19. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you very much. Thank you for the stage you've given us. Um, First, I want to pray for the person in this room that's never received you as their personal Savior, but they came here looking today, looking for something, and what they found is you. I pray that in this moment, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you'll press upon their heart to receive you as their Savior. And they might not even know what that means, but I ask that they will have the tenacity to either ask the person that invited them to church today or come forward at the end of this, uh, this service or find one of us afterwards to ask about how they can receive you as their personal Savior. It'll be the greatest moment in their life. For the rest of us in this room, I pray that this story and this picture is etched on our mind during this next week and actually for the rest of our lives. That in that moment where we have a relationship gap, where we have the opportunity to either be oppressive or trustworthy, oppressive or lift people up, that we will choose to lift people up the benefit of the doubt to not make the situations in our life worse, but make our environments better. And in so doing, we'll be living exactly the way that you want us to live. So we leave that at the foot of the cross. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let's stand and sing. I'm here for you at the end of the service today. Love to pray for you if you need that. And the altar is also open as we sing.